This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, the frustration in mental health that despite the money pouring in, treatment doesn't seem to be making a dent. But a closer look is telling a different story. How gene testing is giving parents of children with cerebral palsy a more specific diagnosis, which could also lead to better targeted treatments. And we saw the Artemis One mission to space successfully launch last week. It was an uncrewed spacecraft, but the idea of the Artemis mission is to set up a long-term base on the moon, getting humans back on the moon and eventually even to Mars. So is this just clickbait for you, Tegan? I mean, this is what the science show does to get you know, astronomy stories, <laughs> just to get audience on, on, the, on seats. Is there a health angle here? I'll give the people what they want, Norman, but I promise this is a health story because with missions like these and space becoming more commercial, humans are going to be spending longer in space than they ever have before. And we don't really know what happens to our bodies in it because while gravity kind of sucks when you're trying to get off the couch or you accidentally drop something, it turns out it's pretty important for how our bodies function even down to the level of our brain function. Then you undo your buckles and you're floating and everything you've ever learned about how to use your body is suddenly made null and void. (laughs) This is Stan Love. He's a physicist and an astronaut with NASA. He spent two weeks in the space shuttle in 2008. And honestly, the way he talks about zero gravity is taking the shine off it for me a bit. And your first day in weightlessness is like your first day in a wheelchair after a spinal accident. Your lower body is useless. And now you've got to get used to using your upper body for orientation and propulsion, as well as for manipulating things. And uh, you don't get as much done the first day as you might have planned on. Plus, most people feel nauseated. About a third of people actually feel bad enough that they throw up. However, after about four days, your vestibular system rewires itself and everybody feels better. And that's when you start seeing the videos of people flying around the cabin and doing somersaults in midair and all that fun stuff. And it is a blast. Earth's gravity doesn't just keep us grounded. It's a tool our body uses to function, including our brain. On Earth, we pump blood into our brain from our heart and gravity then equilibrates and pulls it back down into our chest and to our lower extremities. This is Meng Law. He's a professor in neuroscience at Monash University. So in space where there is microgravity, the return of fluid from the brain into the lower body is not there. and There's a continuous buildup of fluid, if you like, in the brain over time. And it occurs fairly quickly. In a matter of weeks, 30% of astronauts will report some visual disturbances. These visual disturbances have a technical name, spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome. The visual effects are primarily because of the change in the shape that the globe in the eyeball becomes a little bit flattened. So they tend to be more long-sighted. And then there's fluid that accumulates around the optic nerve as well. That also causes some flattening of the optic disc. So the combination of all those things causes the visual abnormalities. And then with the increase in fluid in the brain, they report uh, headaches and so on. Right. So there's headaches and there's sort of these acute changes. Is there anything around long-term neurological damage? So that's something that's not really known. Good news is that these symptoms are reversible and uh, when they return to Earth, all these effects tend to equilibrate and go back to normal. 
astronauts are sent to the space station for six months to 12 months at a time. And then they have to return pilot because of some of these effects, not only to the brain, but other effects to the rest of the body. So we don't know if someone spends more time in space, whether these changes become irreversible. Meng and his colleagues have been studying brain scans of astronauts to figure these things out. And not just NASA astronauts either. The researchers pulled MRIs from NASA, the European Space Agency and the Russian Space Agency Roscosmos. There was a difference between the Russian cosmonauts and the NASA astronauts. And it turns out that this spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome which seems to be more prevalent in the NASA astronauts than in the uh, cosmonauts from, uh, from the Russian Space Agency. And when we looked at the mitigation factors, it turns out that the two space agencies uh, have slightly different ways of potentially dealing with this. NASA used a resistance exercise setup, whereas the Russians use a lower body negative pressure suit that effectively simulates gravity in sucking the fluid out of the upper body. With more humans planning to spend more time in space, maybe on commercial joy flights, maybe long-term missions to the moon or Mars, it's important that we know what low gravity does to us and how to mitigate it. So commercially, if you know people are wanting to go into space for a few days at a time or even maybe a few weeks, it's unlikely that there's going to be an issue. Another space program launching next year is Polaris Dawn, and Meng and his colleagues are looking forward to getting even more precise data about the effects of low gravity on the brain. SpaceX and NASA are sending some astronauts into space and we're uh, configured to potentially do MRI scans on these astronauts within an hour or two of them landing. I mean, most of this data that we've analysed has been days to weeks after they've returned. So we really want to try and figure out what happens immediately after they return. It's research like this that's going to set us up for more ambitious spaceflight. Astronaut Stan Love. Yep, if we want to go to Mars, that's going to be three years in reduced gravity. Maybe a year of that, you'd be on Mars. And we have no data what happens to you at three-eighths of a G, so that will be interesting. But that's a long trip, yeah, and we have a lot to learn before we can be confident that we can send people on that long a trip and do it safely. Dr. Stan Love, a NASA physicist and astronaut. And, of course, we also heard from Meng Law, a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at Monash University and head of Diagnostic and Interventional Radiology Research at the Alfred Hospital. And actually, Norman, at the same conference where Meng Law presented his research, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Radiologists, a different group presented work on the risk of glute muscle loss, that is your butt muscles. I'm squeezing them as you speak. (laughs) Well, you'd better keep doing it because it has real impacts on hip stability once they get back to Earth. And And it's actually something that Stan Love experienced in his short time in space too. During my short flight, I actually had time scheduled for exercise. We had a little exercise bike on the shuttle. The space station has really good exercise equipment now. We've been through several generations of it and it's working pretty well. But for the shuttle crews, we just had those little bike. And I tried it for about 10 minutes and said, this is pointless. And I blew off all the rest of my exercise for the flight because I had a lot of work to do. And if I had spare time, dang it, I was going to go look out the window. So uh, I didn't do any of my exercise. I did do two spacewalks, which is pretty good exercise those two days. But when I got back, I had lost eight pounds of muscle (gasps) all off my legs. I basically lost eight pounds of muscle off my legs. It took two months to get it back. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So my advice is if you go to space, even if the exercise seems silly, do it. Because otherwise, you're going to be doing a lot of work to get back your physical conditioning. Because as soon as you turn off the loads on your muscles... Your body says, I don't need this, and just dumps it. I suppose that space described as a bummer. 
<laughs> yeah, I follow Stan Love for more space health tips. You're listening to The Health Report. Mental health issues are rarely out of the headlines. Each year, we seem to be told the problems of psychological distress, anxiety and depression grow, despite more and more money being invested in treatment. Is it that the treatment of psychological disorders is ineffective or insufficient, or that its effect is overwhelmed by the increases in community prevalence? It's an important question because it can affect the balance of expenditure on interventions aimed at prevention in the community, in other words, population interventions, versus treatment services for individuals. That's what drove mathematical modellers at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney to investigate. And the lead author was Senior Research Fellow, Dr Adam Skinner. Welcome to The Health Report. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Now, we're not alone in Australia with this conundrum, are we? Uh, no, so this this pattern of stable or worsening population mental health in the face of uh, increasing access to mental health care is um, also observed in other high-income countries. Uh, so the United Kingdom, the United States, um, Canada and Japan. Um, so uh, it's being labelled the, the treatment prevalence paradox. Um, so... I suppose my... my it's quite, well, it's OK, sorry. so they've got the problem too, more treatment but you've still got the problem and the prevalence doesn't go down. We should just make a a, a distinction here. We're not talking about incidents, in other words, the number of new cases every year. We're talking about the burden of mental health issues in the community. But why would you expect treatment to lower prevalence? Because, for example, if you've got heart disease and you go on statins and blood pressure medication, you've still got heart disease, even though the risk of the heart disease goes down. Sure. So what we're... we're looking at here are, are people who have current disorders, so people who are, who are experiencing um, symptoms currently. Um, and um, the, there's evidence, quite a, a substantial amount of evidence from, from randomised controlled trials at mental health treatments, so um, psychological therapy, medication or a combination of both um, can, can reduce people's symptoms. And so we would expect... Um, that increasing access to these treatments should should result in a, a decline in the number of people with current mental health problems in in the population at any point in time. So, how did you study this? Uh, so, um, we looked at this using a, a a relatively simple mathematical model um, of the onset of, of mental health problems um, and recovery due to to treatment. So. Um, we fitted this model to, to data on the, the prevalence of, of high to very high psychological distress um, and uh, access to Medicare subsidised mental health services in Australia um, over the period 2008 uh, to 2019. So it was a 10-year um, period, so it was a big sample. Yeah, yeah. So, so this process of model fitting uh, essentially involves adjusting key parameters in the model um, to produce the closest possible match that we can get between um, the, the model outputs and the empirical data. Because during this time, expenditure went up a lot, particularly on the, what's called the Better Access Scheme, which is access to psychologi- individual psychologists, and the workforce went up as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, so um, the, the result of, of those things is that um, um, the, the proportion of the population accessing mental health care 
um, so, so Medicare subsidised mental health care went um, went up from from 4.8% in 2008 to 10.6% in 2019. So uh, more than doubling uh, of the the rate of service provision over that period. So did, it, did when you really dug into it, was it making a difference? Um, yeah. So we looked at we looked at two two possible explanations for why um, why we see this pattern of, of what looks like no no real impact of increasing access to care. And uh, one of these is an increase in incidence uh, of mental health problems, so the number of new cases per year. So if this is increasing um, uh, uh, So the waves are getting than, bigger? Yeah, yeah, more rapidly than the, the, the recovery rate um, due to increasing access to care, we'd expect an increase in prevalence. Um, the other explanation we looked at was um, a decline in uh, the effectiveness of treatment. So um, by that, we, we don't necessarily mean a decline in the, the quality of care provided in a, a typical consultation. Um, what, what we're interested in here is the possibility that the increasing treatment dropout associated with declining service accessibility uh, may have led to a decline in the, pro the proportion of patients receiving adequate care. So, um, you know, if if demand for care is increasing more rapidly than the capacity of services to treat people, we expect waiting times and out-of-pocket costs and so on to increase, um, which is going to lead to a, a greater number of people disengaging from care uh, prematurely, which is a problem because um, patients usually have to attend multiple consultations over a period of months uh, for treatment to be effective. Did you model what would have happened if you hadn't invested in treatment? So in other words, you, you found that there were systemic problems with treatment services that may have been overwhelmed by the increase in prevalence. But when you analysed it, what, what would have happened if there was no investment in treatment? Uh, yeah, so, so this is something we looked at. So our analyses clearly indicate that the risk of developing um, high levels of distress has increased. Um, uh, but we ran some simulation analyses using a fitted model to look at what would happen if incidents had remained constant over that period, 2008 to 2019. And what we see um, uh, is that if the, the, the increase in access to care over that period would have resulted in a, um, a modest but still significant decline in, in the prevalence of psychological distress over the, over the study period. So in other words, if, you hadn't, if we hadn't had the increased amount of mental health issues in the community, you would have seen a dip. It was just that it was overwhelmed. But it wasn't dramatic, there, which suggests there are problems with the way we're investing in treatment. I mean, that's the other implication, I assume, of your study? Uh, yeah, so the, the increase was, uh, sorry, the, the decrease the, uh, was small. Um, and part of the reason for that is the, the, the level of access to care. So um, in the recent National Study of Mental Health and Wellbeing uh, in 2020-21, um, we see that only, you know, um, around half of people with a 12-month disorder actually access care. Um, another problem is that people who access care, um, uh, only only around 40% of those receive adequate care. So they, they stick with care long enough for it to be potentially effective. And then there's also the issue which Ian Hickey um, at the Brain and Mind Centre has talked about as well, which is that it's not necessarily appropriate for everybody to see a psychologist working by him or herself. It needs to be a psychologist working in a team, so it may be the design of services. Fascinating stuff, Adam. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. 
Dr. Adam Skinner is a senior research fellow in the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. There are estimated to be 34,000 people in Australia who are living with cerebral palsy, and it affects one in 700 babies. For some families, there's an explanation for this disorder, which can affect movement, vision, speech and intellect. But often it's a mystery. And with the advent of more accessible gene testing, there's been growing interest in whether looking at the child's genes yields useful information for parents and treatment teams. That's what a review of the available evidence sought to answer. One of the researchers was Dr. Siddharth Srivastava, who's in the Department of Neurology at the Boston Children's Hospital. Of course, yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, cerebral palsy has been this controversial condition. It's the cause of a lot of litigation against obstetricians because people say it's due to oxygen deprivation at birth. Work done here in Western Australia has shown that that's actually a rare cause of cerebral palsy. It's mostly upstream. Something happens during pregnancy. But the question is, what is it that happens? I mean, presumably that's at the core of what you've been looking at. That's right. There is a lot of confusion about what the term cerebral palsy or CP even means. If you look at the definition of CP, the definition refers to a non-progressive motor disturbance of early childhood due to injury to the developing brain. It's pretty general and it covers a wide variety of different causes, things like prematurity, hemorrhage, infection, stroke, and in some cases, decreased oxygen at birth. The cause of decreased oxygen at birth is actually a very small percentage of total cases of CP. And my own work is looking at the different genetic factors that lead to a presentation of CP. And also there are different ways that CP shows itself in a child. It could be what's called a motor disability where the child has trouble getting around and moving. There could be problems with the eyes and vision and so on. And there can be sometimes intellectual delay as well. Absolutely. CP can present very heterogeneously. You can have some children and adults who are mildly affected, who are able to walk on their own without support. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you can have children and adults who are significantly affected, who require wheelchairs for ambulation, who need assistance in terms of all activities of daily living. You also have additional conditions like intellectual disability, communication impairment, hearing issues, and the like. So in this study, you tried to gather all the evidence together about if you look for a genetic cause, there was something wrong in the genes of these kids. To use the technical term, you're looking at the exome sequences. Now, the exome part of our genome is the part of the genome that codes for proteins. In other words, it does stuff in terms of you can measure the effect of those genes in terms of what they produce. That's correct. So in this study, we did this meta-analysis where we looked at the diagnostic yield of two different genetic tests, including exome sequencing, which you were talking about, and a different test called the chromosomal microarray. We looked at the diagnostic yield of both of these tests for picking up a genetic disorder in cases of CP. Just to explain these two tests in a little bit more detail, one way of thinking about how DNA is organized is by imagining a book which has chapters, pages, words, letters. A chromosomal microarray is a way of detecting whether there are certain pages, for example, that may be missing or that may be extra. Exome sequencing has a much higher resolution and can actually detect if there are words that are misspelled or if there are single letters that are missing or extra. And when you brought that together, the evidence, what did you find in terms of the usefulness of these tests in helping parents understand the reason for their child having cerebral palsy? So what we found is that with exome sequencing, the overall diagnostic yield in cases of CP was about 23%. 
and using chromosomal microarray, the overall diagnostic yield was about 5%. In other words, there is a substantial percentage of cases of CP that may be genetic in nature. So if you use the gold standard, which is exome sequencing, about one in four of these children would have their condition explained by the genes. But was that a thousand different conditions or five? And were they conditions that would make a difference to the treatment of that child? There are multiple different genetic disorders that can present as CP. There are some conditions that come at the forefront, but certainly there is a wide range of different genetic conditions, genetic disorders that were presented in this data. But what about what the cancer people call actionable genes? In other words, genes which tell you that there might be a treatment available. In this study itself, we did not look at clinical actionability. We did not do an actionability analysis, but that's actually something that we're doing right now in terms of looking at different genes that are implicated in CP and how does that genetic diagnosis actually change management for the patients and their families? There have been a number of other studies that have looked at the actionability of genetic diagnoses for other related conditions, such as intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorder, and have shown that having a genetic diagnosis can certainly impact management in a number of really important ways. And these ways include things like changing the prognosis from being one of a non-progressive condition to a progressive condition, impacting reproductive counseling, allowing education about availability of certain targeted treatments, and allowing education about awareness of different clinical trials. So certainly, I think there's evidence from other disorders, other neurodevelopmental disorders, where a genetic diagnosis absolutely impacts management. And I expect very similar for CP as well. Then the next question that parents will have, which is, does this affect the next pregnancy? In other words, if you find this gene, can I have that tested? For example, if I go through an IVF procedure and you have the genetic diagnosis at the embryo level. Most cases are de novo. What I mean by that is that the misspelling has arisen spontaneously in the child and does not occur in either the mother or the father. The recurrence risk for each pregnancy in that case is about 1%. And the reason why it's not 0% is that there's a theoretical risk for what we call mosaicism, in which there's this possibility that the egg cell or the sperm cell may carry the misspelling. Again, that's a low risk. It's not commonplace. Were there any surprises here? In other words, I never knew that gene was involved in cerebral palsy. You know, that changes the game. Absolutely. There were some surprises. The authors of each study sometimes divided the cohort into cryptogenic CP and non-cryptogenic CP. And what I mean by that is if there are no known risk factors for first CP, we call that cryptogenic CP. And if there are established risk factors for CP present, such as prematurity or hypoxia, we call that non-cryptogenic CP. When we started this analysis, we assumed that the non-cryptogenic CP cases would have a very low diagnostic yield, probably close to zero. What was surprising is that the diagnostic yield among those cases was actually not 0%. There are some genetic disorders that were present in the non-cryptogenic CP category. And that is actually very surprising because the thinking around CP is that, well, if there are known risk factors like prematurity that explain the CP, why would there be a genetic diagnosis? But our data showed, well, actually, in some small percentage of cases in those non-cryptogenic CP cases, there was, in fact, a genetic diagnosis present. 
which really I think is a very interesting finding. And I think it raises a lot of questions about etiology when it comes to CP and really looking truly and deeply in a child or an adult who presents with CP and making sure you as the clinician know and truly understand what is going on and what is the causal factors that are implicated in that presentation of CP. Well, in fact, going on about it, the West Australian data long ago suggested that babies that had problems during birth may well have had a vulnerability. And it was that vulnerability which increased the risk of problems at birth. You're absolutely right. It continues to be the case in terms of conventional thinking that CPs due to risk due to injury that occurred during delivery, decreased oxygen. Again, that's a small percentage of cases of CP, about 10% of cases of CP or so. But what you're alluding to is the idea, well, there are certainly other antenatal, prenatal risk factors that may have contributed to the development of CP. And though some of those risk factors could be genetic in nature. And, and my job and one of my goals really has been to try to unearth those genetic risk factors. Let's say you've a parent's listening who's got a child with cerebral palsy. Should they ask for exome sequencing? Is it at that stage yet where it's a fair question to ask your pediatrician or your obstetrician, can we have it done? When a family of a child with CP comes to see a clinician, I think the clinician's role is to first to see, is the CP completely explained? But you've just said, even if it's completely explained by birth trauma or something like that, there's a percentage where there is a genetic problem. Yeah, I think so. So I think in those cases where the CP is completely explained, what I would say is look for any additional factors that may raise concern for a genetic disorder. What I mean by that is look outside of the nervous system to see, could there be any congenital anomalies? So for example, in some of the data, we found that in the cases of non-cryptogenic CP, there were additional findings outside of the brain that could have suggested the possibility of a genetic diagnosis, such as a cleft palate or a genital urinary malformation or something along those lines. So in those cases, I think it's very important for the clinician to not be stuck in the assumption, oh, it's CP, it's not genetic nature. So going back to the families, I think it's fair game for the families to raise the question, could there be an underlying genetic factor going on? I think it's reasonable for the physician, for the clinician to look over the entire history and make sure there isn't any red flag that could suggest the presence of a genetic disorder. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Dr. Siddharth Srivastava is a pediatric neurologist and a neurodevelopmental disability specialist at Boston Children's Hospital. Now, Tegan, next week, you're going to continue this theme of birth and babies. Yeah, this idea of screening is one of one of the ones that's really important. So I'll be hosting the health report next week by myself because you're going to be away, Norman. I'm going to be joined by my colleague Olivia Willis in the science team who's helping head up the ABC Birth Project. And we're going to be talking about all things birth and babies, or at least a few things. One of them is going to be about prenatal screening and understanding what you're being screened for before you have the screening because often people get those results back with something that's that's been considered to be high risk and then they're sort of a, a bit thrown by it because they didn't actually realise that that was what they were being screened for. And then the birth project, the ABC birth project that Olivia's been involved with, is basically they've been giving a call out to say, what's going, what's working, what's not working when it comes to giving birth in Australia. They only launched the call out about two weeks ago and they've already got thousands of responses. So That's we're going to get a sense of what's coming through there. And what are the themes? 
birth trauma is a big one, medical intervention, uh, healthcare services and staffing, especially in, as it varies across Australia. We know that we're a big country with some really, really remote areas and then some really well-serviced metro areas uh, and also postpartum care. And this idea of what happens after you give birth is another theme we're going to be exploring next week with what's the right amount of time to spend in hospital after you give birth. Obviously, it varies depending on who and where you are, but what should go into making that decision? Well, that's next week on The Health Report. Sorry I'll miss it. It's going to be absolutely fascinating, but I'll be listening. This has been The Health Report from me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.